This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Last time I was here, we talked a little bit about some of the uh, paramitas, particularly ethical conduct. And so I've been thinking a lot about that and my practice and our practices together and so forth. Um, and I was reminded of this poem by E.E. E. Cummings in which he says that April is the cruelest month. Um, and some of the lines say, April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of dead land mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Winter kept us warm, <clears throat> covering earth in forgetful snow, feeding a little life with dried tubers. What are the roots that clutch? What are the branches that grow out of this stony place? So I think one of the interpretations for me of, of what that poem means is, is that there is a period between winter and spring um, and this particular weekend, it's also a period between our money and the tax man's money on Monday. So, so, so there are these periods that, that in all of life that are just between. And, and I think sometimes um, practice can feel that way for me and, and maybe for others, that, that sometimes I'm deeply immersed in studying and, um, and other uh, forms and traditions. And <clears throat> sometimes I'm kind of on autopilot and and just moving along. And, and so it's that in-between time. So one of the expressions that we have in, in Buddhist practice for that um, uh, is the word bardo, which is in the traditional Tibetan teachings is the time between death and rebirth. And there's a period in there that's just like a pause where, where um, how you will um, come back and engage is, is uh, theoretically determined. <clears throat> but more than just between um, birth and death, we now think of the word bardo as uh, moments where gaps appear, interrupting the continuity that we project onto our lives. And so, so I think, <clears throat> you know, for me and, and probably for many of you, we have this desire to um, find a job and to find a relationship and to find friends and to find a spiritual practice and to find etc. Um, and to do so um, with some stability, um, with some sense um, um, of, of really a sense of groundedness and a sense of standing firm. Um, Mel Weitzman talks about stand, stand in one place and go deep. So it's that sense of groundedness. Um, and Pema Chandra um, says in a recent issue of Lions Aurora magazine, it is those moments when we feel ungrounded, when we, um, we have created a sense, a false sense of comfort for ourselves on artificial ground. By doing so, we risk missing the very flavor of who we are. So, so that's interesting for me. I've been um, practicing um, in Buddhism now for 29 years, and I've been a person in recovery for 23 years, and. I've had a job for 13 years that I retired from, but still do, um, and, and I have an apartment that I've been in with rent control for 13 years, and et cetera, et cetera. So, so feeling at this 
point in my life at this age, fairly grounded and fairly um, um, stable, dare I say. Um, and then I'm reminded of these teachings that sometimes it's really a good idea to be disrupted a bit. Um, uh, Miller Ripper referred to disruptions um, as a great marvel, saying the precious pot containing my riches becomes my teacher in the very moment that it breaks. And so that's an opportunity for us to, to think about, um, you know, what it is that, that we hold and, and value and, and why it is that, that we hold and value it. So I think that what I know for me is that as a, as a student of the Buddha um, and a person in life that I've never um, been so, so much interested in the big picture or the esoteric questions. Um, never been um, particularly interested, um, partially for reasons of my own memory, um, in what Dogen said on a certain day, at a certain time, in a certain place, um, or how many myriad of kalpas the Buddha actually sat under that tree. Um, so those are, those are questions that I think provide interesting context and, and so forth, but, but for me it hasn't been the focus of my spiritual practice or my life. And instead, um, I tend to be more interested in what I think of as more practical questions. Um, how can I be a good person? How can I be of service to my sanghas and communities? Um, how can I find meaning in the present, in the here and now? And so, for me, those, those, um, there's always been an effort to try and balance a deep respect for the teachings and the Dharma and the forms um, and a, and a real sense of um, wanting to live and practice in the present moment. Um, so the other thing that drew me to Buddhism is the possibility of balancing that inner life of mine and the outer life, um, which are really not two different things, but the inner life is my own journey and the outer life is the one you know with other people in it. And so, so how, does, how do I um, find some balance there? I heard a wonderful Dharma talk <coughs> Michael Winger gave a couple years ago, and it was called, <coughs> excuse me, A Tangle Inside and a Tangle Outside. And it's a teaching um, of the Buddha that says, this generation um, is entangled in a tangle. The disciple is asking the Buddha, I ask you, Gautama, who can disentangle this tangle? <coughs> the Buddha um, said that to untie these knots of misery, um, one must cultivate morality mindfulness, concentration, and insight. The Buddha says, a man who is wise, established on virtue, and develops the mind in a way that expresses wisdom, generosity, truthfulness, patience, and compassion. By developing and mastering these qualities within himself, um, this man lives in harmony with his own conscience and at peace um, with his fellow beings. And so for me, it was that, that really... Um, Brought, brought some inner peace to me and brought some um, spiritual and cognitive um, uh, spiritual and cognitive peace, if you will, in the sense that it wasn't just me who was trying to balance this internal and this external, um, and that's logical, it wouldn't be just me, um, but it, it was historical and, and current and, and shared by uh, most, if not all of us. And so, you know, I... I um, trying to then to figure out how to live um, the life 
of a Buddhist disciple or a, a bodhisattva when, when the vows were taken. And there are a couple teachings that really have helped me with that over the years. And one is the, uh, the teaching of the four right efforts um, from the Sumyata Nikaya uh, Pali text. Um, and the right efforts really um, support um, the sixth factor, right effort, um, these, these uh, four efforts um, in the Noble Truths. And, and they are very simply, um, the first one is restraint, and it talks about avoiding and preventing the arising of unwholesome states and unskillful thoughts which have not yet risen. The second one is abandoning, and abandoning unwholesome states and unskillful thoughts which have already arisen. And what, what really um, resonated and taught me and, and helped me deeply with that was that acknowledgement that it's always a process, that there are unwholesome thoughts, you know, selfishness, self-seeking, um, um, uh, isolation. There, there, are, there are things that will arise in the life of any person, in the life of any student of the Buddha. Um, and, and the process is um, to try and avoid having those thoughts arise. And, and once they do arise, um, to, to be skillful about entertaining those thoughts and, and skillful about diminishing those thoughts um, um, through meditation, through working with a teacher, through um, the way that one leads one's life. The second two of the four right efforts are uh, developing, which talks about cultivating and developing and bringing forth wholesome states and skillful thoughts which have not yet arisen. And the fourth is uh, protecting, generating the desire for continuing um, arising of wholesome states. And again, it's this, this process that unwholesome states exist in all of us, and unwholesome thoughts and beliefs and attitudes, um, and so do wholesome states. You know, the Buddha's teaching that we all have exactly what we need um, to be enlightened and to be awakened, and the process is to allow those um, in that balance between unwholesome thoughts and states and wholesome thoughts and states that it's an active process of knowing they're both there and then working to diminish the unwholesome ones and to allow the wholesome thoughts to arise um, and it just seemed seemed to me that that was a helpful teaching because I don't know about any of you but I from time to time at Jukai and at ordination and at other times in my life have just thought, well, I've been at this two decades or 28 years, and I should have this by now. I should be doing this perfectly, whatever that means. Um, so the Buddha said in, in that quote I did before that um, the person who is wise um, develops um, their mind with wisdom. And so how do we develop, how do I, how do you, how do we all develop that wisdom? Um, and the other set of tools that, that I've been uh, looking at um, and I mentioned the last time I was here with the Paramitas. Um, and um, I will confess um, that I don't think I ever did it here, but about 14 years ago when I started giving, um, having the opportunity to teach and give talks at Meditation and Recovery and other places, I used to use the, con the words precept and paramita interchangeably. Um, and kind people would smile at me, um, hoping that I would catch that. <laughs> One of those people is probably in the room although I think I might have fixed that before I got here, I hope. Um, but, but they're both, um, uh, you know, they're not the same thing, but they're both um, um, opportunities for us to think about how we want to live in practice. 
And the way I understand it now is that the precepts are guidance um, for Dharma practice. These are vows we take that a disciple of the Buddha will do these things if, if he or she or they want to uh, want to practice. The paramitas, um, on the other hand, as I understand it, are qualities of refined mindfulness. So these are um, the qualities that, that I would have if I want to create the environment in which I can have a, a deep mindfulness practice. Um, they are the six mindfulness, uh, the six, excuse me, um, uh, perfections or paramitas are generosity, morality, tolerance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. Um, and in the book that I mentioned the last time by um, Dale Wright, he says that the paramitas offer an ideal image that gives purpose and direction to human life, guides our decision, and provides reason for acting in certain ways and helps to shape our will. And he interestingly refers to it as when he thinks about it, he thinks about it as the thought of enlightenment. So for the Paramitas, it's the thought of enlightenment. And, and in various Buddhist um, teachings, the thought of enlightenment um, um, is frequently about um, that first moment of awakening when we uh, begin to know um, that as a disciple of the Buddha or Bodhisattva, that we should live for the benefit of all sentient beings. That includes me but not just me, everyone else. So the thought of enlightenment is about the possibility, about the possibility through practice um, and through study and through sitting and through engaged Buddhism for me, um, that we can begin to develop the platform um, for the kind of practice that we want to have and the kind of people that we want to be, the kind of bodhisattvas. The other thing in the teachings that was really helpful to me is the notion um, that that idea of a thought of enlightenment changes. It changes as I change, it changes for me as you change, as we change as a community. Um, it changes as our world gets smaller and we have access to more people who are the same as us, more people who are theoretically different than us, um, you know, socioeconomic um, status, um, various places on the gender spectrum, um, races and faiths, really an opportunity for us to say, ah, so what I thought was the basis and the foundation of my practice has a chance to expand, has a chance to include more folks. Um, so um, some Buddhist texts maintain that the greatest awakening is this first one, the, uh, the point of life um, of the thought of mindfulness, where we realize that we are both free and responsible to engage in enlightened self-transformation. And so for me, that's been a big part of um, my practice is even trying to find balance there because we're, we're told frequently that we do not practice with gaining mind. Um, and so we practice because practice is the right thing to do. Um, but I know that in my life, I came through the doors of, of uh, Buddhism um, because my life wasn't working very well and, and I was hoping to find that opportunity to live peacefully and authentically. And so when I came, I, I heard the, the instruction not to sit with gaining mind, um, but I did know that I was hoping that a benefit of sitting would be um, some changes in how I viewed myself and how I viewed my capacity um, um, to really conscientiously open my mind and heart to the world. So it seems to me like a lot of the teachings that I've encountered and that have really 
um, moved my practice along over the years have, have had to do with um, that practice <clears throat> should be a way to prepare for all aspects of life. Um, the joys and the frustrations, the happiness and the dark days, all of it. Um, and a really powerful teaching that I first heard from Mel Weitzman, and I don't know where it originally comes from, but practice is not a refuge from my full life, practice is my full life. And so at first when I heard that, you know, as a young, young younger, wasn't young then, but younger person and sort of naive, I thought, oh, well they're telling me that I should um, come to a, a monastery and shave my head and put on some robes and do nothing but sit and study, nothing but sit and study and that that then practice would be my whole life. The way my practice has developed over the years um, um, says that, um, that, that for some people that is a wonderful gift of practice to be able to be a monastic and to be fully engaged in sitting and study full time. But for most of us, um, the idea is that we have a life here and we have a life outside where we work and live and partner and and so forth. And that, you know, what happens is that this um, informs that. And so for me, when I do psychotherapy or when I do work with meditation and recovery and the lesbian and gay sanghas around the city and when I do suicide training and advocacy, all of that is practice. So it's not that I come down here and sit um, to inform practice, it's that I come down here and sit and when I last weekend taught a two-day long workshop to train other people how to help with suicide, that is Buddhist practice. That is my practice. Um, and it's certainly grounded here in sitting in Zazen um, and in the teachings and the forms. Um, but the practice is alive and changing as the world changes. And for me, my um, current interpretation is that the, the world um, doesn't need me to be living in a monastery. Um, the world um, benefits more when I am out in the world doing things um, that sort of make sense for me. So early on, uh, Michael Winger said, uh, gave a teaching that included the line for his students um, as we were preparing for ordination, look at the lives you're living. Um, and it stressed that teaching, the importance of being um, really mindful and present in thought, word, and deed, and in our actions with ourselves and others. So I've been really thinking a lot um, in the last you know, couple years, um, and I've talked with a bunch of teachers, and including Mio, about how I, can, how I can live a life in, grounded in um, Buddhism and grounded in Soto Zen, um, grounded in my bodhisattva vows, and fully engaged in the world and the communities in which I live. Um, so Michael and I have talked, and after 18 years, um, we've agreed that I'm going to move on from Michael uh, with deep gratitude and thanks, and he's deeply supportive. Um, and it's just a matter of it being the time for me to do the next, the next step in my process um, and in my, in my um, bodhisattva vows. So developing um, that opportunity for growth um, and a splendid, as the word was used earlier, recommitment to my interpretations and engagement with Soto Zen. So there's some big, big things happening for me um, in my practice at the moment. Um, and so um, practice for me, um, I want to deepen the ability, if, you, if you've ever looked at the ox herding pictures, um, 
It's the 10 pictures that are a story of um, coming to, um, events trying to get, uh, the farmer trying to get his, his ox to the market. Um, and they're beautiful uh, pictures and, and lots of interpretations to what they mean. But <coughs> I was really drawn to the last one. Um, and the last one is the farmer coming back to, um, to the market and encountering um, one of the local folks. And underneath that um, photo, it says um, that returning to the marketplace with bliss-bearing hands. Um, and so the way I'm interpreting that um, for me is that I want to be able to deepen my ability to take bliss-bearing hands to the places that I work. And bliss-bearing for me is, a, I'm simply interpreting that as to reduce suffering, to recognize suffering, to acknowledge and honor suffering, um, and then to take on the part um, that, is, um, that is about reducing suffering. So um, it seems to me that, that we have this opportunity, um, all of us, um, to make, uh, to define how it is we live. I absolutely, which I did not for many years in between, absolutely believe that monastics who spend all of their time um, um, sitting and studying actually do make the world a better place. I was confused about that for a while. It felt to me like isolation and, and, um, and um, not full practice. Um, and what I now understand is, you know, the, the Tricycle Magazine says, I'm changing the world one mind at a time. And I think um, those who are able to dedicate their lives to um, furthering and honoring the traditions and the teachings and the practices and the forms um, really do play a role. And, and in, the, in the world, they play a role of breathing in chaos and breathing in all of the conflict in the world and breathing out peace and breathing out harmony and breathing out um, uh, um, a way of living in, in life that is more peaceful. So it, those are indeed how a disciple of the Buddhist um, would live. So my practice, on the other hand, which is the community-based practice or marketplace practice, um, has really given me an opportunity to think about how I can be deeply committed to sitting and more open and more committed to learning um, um, as I, Michael and I had our, had our meeting and had this wonderful conversation, I casually mentioned that I'm softening up. Dogen, um, I've said here before, has never made any sense to me. It's I try to read it and read his teachings and, and they're thick and confusing and complicated. And, and so I said to Michael that I appreciate um, the teachers who I've worked with, who himself uh, included, deeply committed to Dogen, um, and that I hoped casually and in the sideline that I hoped to study Dogen a little more and to, to come in contact. And so as we ended our meeting, he gave me a lovely gift, um, which was a two-volume set that weighs about 45 pounds of the complete teachings of Dogen. And he said, here, this will be a good place to start. Um, so, so that part of the practice is how do I um, really honor and focus on Zazen and studying um, and equally focus on um, my work in, in the marketplace or the community. So part of um, one of the paramitas that, that has helped me in thinking about all this is the paramita or the perfection of generosity. Um, and part of what generosity says is that um, 
how I'm living for the benefit of myself and all other human beings, how I'm teaching um, for the benefit of all other beings, how I am engaged in um, uh, community service or engage Buddhism for the benefit of all other beings. And one of the things that I know and, and that I've seen in myself and others is that when we start doing the kind of reflections that, that I'm talking about, and I know from talking to several of you that you're engaged in, it can become a lot of self in, inward looking and you know almost narcissistic concern about um, my own brand of uh, Buddhism, my own um, sense of self, my own satisfactoriness um, in life. Um, but then in point of fact, what it has to do with is, is how I'm, for me, leading that Buddhist vow of doing all things for the benefit of self and others. And so the generosity is to make myself available um, to learn and to teach, to serve and to be served, to be grateful and to accept gratitude and generosity from others so that they have that opportunity. Um, one of the teachings that I'm really um, fond of is the teaching um, that says um, our ego um, creates, and this comes from this wonderful book that I might have mentioned before, Zen Beyond Mindfulness by Jules um, Shusen Harris, and it says using Buddhism and modern psychology for a transformational practice. And one of the teachings in there says that our ego creates a sense of self and it insists that we are damaged and that undoing the damage is the key and only way to find peace of mind. And out of this sense of damage, we create stories to explain why we are damaged. We thus fall into requirements about how we and others should be in the world. And so the teaching in that book that I really resonate with and, and that I've been um, talking to students and, and uh, other folks in the community that I work is this teaching. We must escape that belief and the behavior that those beliefs engender that we are damaged. And I don't know if any of you read the book back in the day that was called The Best Little Boy in America um, or The Velvet Rage even, and, and how much we as people um, have indoctrinated, have taken in and held, even though we verbally don't believe it and you know, we may have done therapy and spiritual practice and prayer and retreats to get rid of that notion that, you know, for those of us who identify as gay men, that we were not damaged and, and that you know, there was nothing wrong with us. Um, and, but some, for most people, it's still there's a little kernel of it in the back of our mind. And, and so that's what this teaching says. We must escape that belief and the behaviors that those beliefs engender. And here's the reason that he says, in Mahayana and in Zen, we believe that all beings have Buddha Dharma, that all beings are whole, perfect, and complete already. And so if I'm walking around with the notion that I'm damaged, that I have you know, some defects from childhood or from growing up or whenever it was, um, that I'm walking through life as somebody with damage, then I have to equally believe that you're walking through life with damage. Um, and I think what the belief of our, our Zen practice is, is that that's not true. We all have everything we need to be fully awakened. If we concentrate on helping to diminish unwholesome thoughts and states, <clears throat> recognizing, honoring, and um, arising wholesome states. So, um, so I think what we want to do is um, really take that opportunity to, um, to notice that when that comes up, when my defenses, my behaviors, my actions, my words, my fears are based on some ancient sense for me of, of being damaged, that I have the right to work 
actively towards diminishing those thoughts and worked actively towards arising the thought that I and each of you is whole and perfect as we are. So one of the words that comes to mind um, that's taught in, in many Buddhist teachings is heedfulness, heed. Um, and what heedfulness means is to pay attention, to bring constant awareness. Um, and so <clears throat> heedfulness, the Buddha said in one teaching, is the path to liberation. Heedlessness, not paying attention consistently, not paying attention fully, is the path to samsara, the suffering-laden continuous cycle of life, death, and rebirth without beginning or end. So for me, my job as a student of the Buddha and um, as a bodhisattva and as a priest um, has many facets. And what I accept now in a more robust way than I had in the past is that one of those is protecting the Dharma and the traditions and the forms and passing them on um, with a full and generous heart as they were passed on to me. That's part of who I want to be as as a student and as a teacher and as a priest. Um, but the other half of that is that I also feel called to find ways to share the Dharma um, so that it finds roots in the 21st century. Um, in, there's a teaching by a woman named Paula Arai and she calls what she practices um, domestic Zen and that's the name of her book. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to read it. It's pretty good. Um, but what I call domestic Zen and um, many people, including Cynthia Keir, who, who's um, known to most of you, um, refers to as marketplace Zen. But Paula Arai talks about it um, as domestic Zen or home Zen. Um, and I love the way she talks about it because it says, she says that unlike its monastic counterparts, which thrive on control, discipline, and impeccable cleanliness, domestic Zen is at home with the chaotic, emotional, and messy lives of people like you and me struggling with families, health, and jobs. So, so for me, it's like there are lots of, of opportunities for us to practice in lots of ways um, that we can um, enter the marketplace or enter the community or um, honor and recognize the lives we live, our home, which to me is not here or there, but it's here and there. And so um, our spiritual story um, begins with for me, and I think for many of you, a period of solitude, of coming in, of finding refuge on the cushion, of finding refuge in the teachings, of finding refuge in, in the beauty of the forms, so that we don't have to um, spend a lot of time wondering which way to do things or how to do things. Um, but the beauty of the forms is that there's a way that we all share together in pursuit of our spiritual lives. Um, and so it, it comes into solitude. Um, and it comes into uh, refuge and it comes into a safe place to take a look at who and what we have become and the kind of lives we want to lead, the kind of Buddhist, the kind of people we want to be. Um, but I think in the end, um, in thinking about those ox herding pictures, um, spirituality is realized when a person um, returns to society, when returns to the community, to the workplace, to home, and um, does that fully grounded here in, uh, uh, in, in our zendos and in our practice centers. Um, because I think each of us, each of us as, as the Buddha, as the Bodhisattva, has something to teach. We also have something to learn. And then we must put what we teach and learn into actual practice. And so that's what's uh, motivating me and driving me these days.
Um, and I believe that the Buddha's path is found um, uh, and faced only with yourself. You become something new, something surprising and something resilient. And then as a bodhisattva, um, we come back to the broader world, um, including now the Zendo and the, and the cushion, and we find a way to carry the teachings of the Buddha um, and to, um, to, to interact and to engage and to diminish the suffering of and to increase the joy of other human beings. So Dogen does teach, I do have a Dogen quote in here, um, teaches that there is no enlightenment if it is not actualized in present practice and there is no true practice that is not an expression of underlying enlightenment and the mind of the way.